0: You're listening to the Ranch Stewards Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the stewardship and conservation of grasslands, diverse ecological landscapes, and the salt of the earth individuals who dedicate their lives to this endeavor. And now here's your host, Haley Ship.
1: Welcome to the Ranch Stewards Podcast. I am your host, Haley Ship, And... If it's welcome back, thanks for continuing to join us here on this platform that we're slowly getting our feet underneath of us on. If it's your first time, welcome. We're glad to have you. We'd love your feedback. Info at ranchstewards.org. That's how you can get to me directly. Today's topic, we're talking cattle nutrition, but it's not cattle nutrition at any normal time. It is cattle nutrition in the utmost depths of winter temperatures in our discussion today. So it's been an unseasonably mild winter on the northern Great Plains, our haystacks standing boldly tall and wide for January with a welcome reprieve. However, reprieve no more as mother nature did an about face recently dropping areas like glasgow where i'm recording from as much as 70 degrees fahrenheit in a 60 hour period if it seems extreme that's because it is but it is also accurate i double checked with our local weather service so again 70 degree shift in 60 hours winter has arrived it's hard for me and i work in the house what is it like for our livestock? Well, it is a lot for them. And so we're going to get into uh, some winter feeding strategies, some winter feeding essentials today with Megan Van Emmon and Tyrell Obrecht. Now, who are Megan and Tyrell? Here's how we like to set up our podcasts. We have an expert in the field. So that's Dr. Megan Van Emmon, Extension Beef Cattle Specialist with Montana State University. And then we have an expert in the field, rancher. Because let's face it, not all of this stuff is learned in a classroom setting. So our rancher today, Rancher Stewardship Alliance board member Tyrell Obrecht, he and his family ranch on the Louis Petrie Ranch in Turner, Montana. With that, I'll go ahead and and let them introduce themselves.
2: So I'm from Northeast Indiana originally, Um, you know, not necessarily a huge beef state. Um, Went to Purdue, did my bachelor's there, thought I was going to, you know, go be the veterinarian, come back home and and work on cattle and and swine and everything, and um, honestly, vet school decided it didn't want me, um, but worked in a swine nutrition lab as an undergraduate, realized very quickly I didn't want to be a swine nutritionist, Um, no offense to those folks that are swine folks, but they smell, and I did not like having to shower three times every time after working pigs, so... (laughs) um decided I was more interested in sheep and beef cattle so started my master's and did that at Purdue and then um moved to North Dakota State a little town called Headinger, North Dakota to work on my doctorate. I was at a research center there and truly enjoyed that. I, I really decided that's kind of where my passion lay was more at the research center side of things um and then went to Iowa uh, for about a year and a half for a postdoc in, in mineral nutrition and feedlot nutrition and decided that was way, way too big, um, way too many people for me. And I really liked the North Dakota State, smaller university, everybody kind of really helped everyone else out. And uh, this job came available for a beef specialist out in, or at a research facility. So for myself at USDA Fort Keogh in Miles City, And thought, well, geez, that's that's pretty interesting. I really enjoy what I that that part of the job and um, moved here in 2014 and been going strong since, I guess. Well, I hope I've been going strong since maybe
1: I should say we've got Tyrell Obrecht with us. Tyrell, uh, you came in from feeding, fighting. uh, You had a hydro bed that was acting up. Then you found you had a frozen water line. So it's been Winter in full force north of Turner, Montana. Tyrell, uh, for folks that maybe don't know you, give your introduction.
0: So I'm fifth generation on the uh, Louis Petrie Ranch. That Louis Petrie was my great grandpa. He had two daughters, so that explains the last name difference. Uh, My grandpa, Sonny, grew up in Cascade, met my grandma at uh, Northern and Haver. My dad's here with me. Grandpa and grandma are still here. And then I have two little kids now with my wife, Lindsay. Addison and Bridger. So we have four generations on the ranch. Uh, graduated with an ag econ degree from Montana State in 2013. I was in ag lending for four, four years uh, after that. Lived in Lewistown, uh, Billings for a little bit, and then Lewistown. Um, I've always been a number guy. So I really like that line of work. I enjoy the business side of ranching, um, you know, the most out of any of the jobs, to be honest with you. And so on our ranch, I moved home six years ago now, and cow calf—the uh, only yearlings we run are what we keep for replacements. And you know we're we're installing water almost every year, trying to improve a lot of our grazing, more of an intense grazing rotation, specifically in April and May on improved pasture. We run on BLM all summer, so we're trying to give that native range as much rest as possible. Um, and then we really strive to push our cattle as much as we can in the winter. We just started feeding yesterday, um, which is a blessing. So trying to keep it as low input as possible uh, without sacrificing animal performance. And I've been on the board of RSA, I think, five years now. Um, and I just I got on that. Leo Barthemus is a good friend and a mentor. And I just think the board and the crowd around RSA is always optimistic, always willing to talk about new ideas, not getting down because of the weather or the market or a political environment, um, that can really happen in agriculture. So that's why I'm involved and why I will continue to be involved.
1: Now we're going to be talking today about nutrition, but, uh- Dr. Ben Emmon, I think this all obviously plays very well together. Recent information, recent data that was pulled by Dr. Daryl Peel with Oklahoma State University was reviewing the last 37 years and looking at the calf crop percentage. So the number of calves weaned over the number of cows exposed. And It was pretty alarming looking at his numbers. Of course, there were ups and downs within the graph, but by and large, it was a downtrend for this graph. So since 1986 to 2022, the numbers that he was looking at, we have seen a decline in the number of calves weaned per cows exposed, which that's our payday. Why are we not doing better at this? What factors are are weighing into this? You know, we have, I would say, arguably better nutrition than ever. And we're also seeing our genetics have more attention paid to them than ever. So what's this reality?
2: Yeah, I think um, it's been a while since I since I saw um, Dr. Peel's uh, graph there. So I'm trying to remember back. But basically, I mean, over the last 40 to probably close to 60 years, we've had a, a declining cow herd throughout the United States, no matter, I guess, which way you look at it, whether it's just total numbers or just amount of calves being weaned. Uh, I guess you brought up, you know, one of the positive things, though, is we have improved our genetics significantly. And so we may not necessarily be weaning the same number of calves, but we're keeping that production relatively constant or even improving that based on improved genetics through, you know, just general knowledge, as well as, you know, more producers utilizing um, artificial insemination to get those better genetics for their cow herd and things like that. Now, I would say in the last few years, probably, you know, since I started in 2014, we, we've already gone through two record-breaking droughts, uh, one, re- one record-breaking winter, and it's not my fault. I'm just going to say that. It wasn't because I moved here. Um. But these are all very important considerations. If we think about like where you're at, Haley, um, in that northeast corner, I mean, four years of drought, at least three, um, not a lot of snow cover the last three winters. I don't know what you guys are looking at now, but like Tyrell said, he just started beating yesterday. We've had an amazing fall and early winter here. And and I'm going to knock on wood on that because, right, we don't want it to to all of a sudden change, but um, these are all big factors that play a part in our cattle um, and our cow herds because uh, we have producers out there um, that managed very well through this three to four years of a drought, but also those that struggled a little bit and had a lot of challenges, um, number one being lack of resources for hay and the cost of that hay, you know, we're thinking, you know, this year wasn't bad at all, but Think back to last year and even late the year before $300 a ton hay, that's a huge check to write. And you're pulling that hay from Canada, the Midwest. I mean, I know producers that pulled it from as far away as Texas and Oklahoma and uh, Missouri and and all these things. So I think there's a lot of different factors. It's not one real attributable factor as to why we're seeing this, but our cow herd is just declining um, in the last few years because. Honestly, last year, the entire Western United States, besides us, really, was in a severe drought again. So um, these all play important factors. And unfortunately, you know, we've seen a lot of dispersions or at least a lot of producers having to sell down their cattle herd just to be able to maintain the ranch until hopefully, you know, we get some of that needed moisture and that weather to help us get that grass growth back and get that cattle production moving again. So I think there's just a lot of different factors to consider and not necessarily one single um, attributable factor to to it all. But luckily, we have been able to maintain our production as a, as a cow herd in the United States because of our improvements in efficiency and, and, and production.
1: So I know one of the issues that we personally had was when the drought really kicked in. We did not keep replacement heifers and so we saw our breed up really not do great this year but it was palatable because it was our older cows that were the ones that were not breeding up and it was the ones that were making some fairly easy culling decisions for us now we're bringing in some replacements you know it wasn't our younger cows that we were kicking out the door so that made us made us much happier although our herd size is definitely showcasing those management decisions. Terrell, you don't have to give me all of your numbers, but is that kind of the case of what you saw for folks around the the Turner area and ranchers that you were talking to this last fall?
0: Yeah, I would I would echo the same. So, you know, what we did personally in uh, 2022, it just didn't snow. And we it didn't rain either in April and May. So we, we got rid of our yearlings. So we didn't have, my dad's been home for just just under 40 years it's the first year we didn't have replacement heifers um you know then even this year you know we we're really pushing our yearlings uh harder you know than truthfully most people would probably say we should but we kind of got our butt kicked on uh on our yearling pregnancy rate in 2023 even our cows actually did fantastic um but i i just think i think a lot of heifer pregnancy and I've, i've heard this a lot along the high line is a combination of They came off the cow in tough shape in October, 2022. It got cold in October, 2022, and really did not warm up like it did this fall. It was cold until basically the 1st of May. Um, And then the feed quality, you know, we bought, we're, I'm fortunate on our ranch where we put up some hay on the stump. But other than that, we raise all of our own feed. We bought 75% of our feed that year. and most of it was good feed, but there were some feed quality issues there too. So I just think it was, and flies this 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 summer. It was it was not just one thing, but but yeah, Haley, I would I would say what what you're seeing is pretty consistent along Highway Two for sure.
1: So a couple of different things going on here. We are pushing these cows right more than we have in the past. The herd size is down. I don't think I speak out of turn when I say that. Across the region, that's the case. People are just running fewer animals right now than they were four or five years ago. Weather has dictated that. And then, as we push these cows a little bit harder, they are the new nucleus of our cattle herds. They're what we're going to rebuild from. We also have Mother Nature just coming in and walloping them right now. As I mentioned at the open of the show, you know, a difference of 70 degrees in 60 hours in Glasgow, Montana. So Megan, as we see these steep changes in weather, and we already know we're, we're asking a lot of these cows, like, I'm going to keep on saying that phrase, but it's the truth. How do we handle that? How do we make sure that we're doing our best by them, taking care of them nutritionally and uh, husbandry wise during these conditions?
2: Yeah, that's the I guess maybe the, the good thing and the bad thing about, about winter, um, it's nice if we can get a gradual ease in to let those cows adapt and, and get that nice heavy winter coat on them. Um, And, but like you said, we did basically a 50 degree swing in three days, um, not counting the wind chill. And that I think that's one of the big ones that um, can really help these cows is if they just have an area to get out of that wind, you know, it's Montana. It's always windy, um, and that's the difficult part. Is because that really increases their nutrient requirements. Um, we're actually in the middle of some projects, hoping to maybe better establish some of those needs on what is ex- how exactly we need to increase our feeding during these really cold snaps. Because unfortunately, if you know, you kind of go by the old rule of thumb: every degree below thirty-two degrees, you increase increase our re- energy requirements by one percent. Well, if you're, we're talking 32 degrees and it's minus 32, you know, that's a 64 degree uh, increase in her energy requirements. If, you know, if you go by the rule of thumb and um, unfortunately we we physically can't feed them enough, they can't consume enough, even of high quality feeds to meet those needs. So getting them out of the wind um, and it doesn't have to be anything fancy, you know, just I mean, just a little shelter belt of trees somewhere where they can just get that wind knocked down really can really help them. Um, Typically these times of uh, the year when we get in these really cold temperatures, I recommend feeding your lower quality feeds Um, just because no, they're not going to meet the requirements, but they need the rumen to be functioning to, to keep warm. That's their entire heat source. And so by feeding them a lower quality feed, you know, lower quality grass, hay, maybe some straw, something like that, that'll sit in that rumen longer can really help them maintain a body core temperature um, and keep going versus feeding our really high quality feeds. Let's even just say like a nice alfalfa hay, but it's extremely digestible. So it passes through them a lot faster. And so therefore you're feeding more. So Kind of weathering the saving some of the the good quality feeds for for maybe not some of the the coldest days, but for our high production timeframe, you know, our extremely late gestation, right before calving and during calving time, um, can really help prolong the use of that high quality feed, but also um, using up some of that poorer quality feed that maybe we don't want to keep that around in the stack for very long. Um, one of the big issues I know we've ran into this year um, from what I've been hearing from producers, we had a lot of good moisture uh, for our hay crops. However, the problem was the, the quality wasn't there because it was honestly too wet. So um, we've had a lot of poor quality uh, harvested feeds this year that I've been seeing. And so we're trying to find ways of how to help producers feed that by maybe doing some mixing with some higher quality feeds or some extra supplements or something like that that are more cost effective um but that's that's kind of what we've been been dealing with here and and i think that's one of the big ones is is if we can get them and they're in good condition the cows are in good condition right now um it definitely gives them a little bit better opportunity to be in good condition coming into calving and then into our breeding season because we're always we're the industry we're always thinking six months to a year down the road and um, I, I've honestly never met a more optimistic group of, of agriculture folks. You know, we're always the ever optimist. It's going to rain tomorrow. It's, we're going to get moisture. We're, it, we're always thinking, trying to think positive and, and hopefully we will get, let's say an average year, whatever average is anymore um, this year. And I just kind of keep crossing my fingers that that we will, and, and hopefully we don't get these really prolonged cold snaps, you know, a few days here and there, our cows can weather the storm pretty, pretty easy.
1: So Tyrell, you're the one that's been sitting there fighting stuff today, getting these uh, cows all fed as you're doing that. I know you probably got thoughts that are ruminating in your brain constantly about is this the most efficient way to handle this? Like you said, business is is the interest that you have, so I know you're watching those dollars just get rolled out there. With that, hey, any questions that come up for you as far as nutrition during these cold temps that you think other people would have for Dr. Van Emmon?
0: Not so much from a forage standpoint, but if you're going to supplement, and I've got a couple questions here, so I'm just going to spit them out at you, but you know, I've, I've heard like your, I mean, Nutrilix, Crystallix, Vitalix, everything ending in Lix and then Sweet Pro um, or like a distiller's grain or, you know, barley cake, wheat cake, whatever. Um, my, my first question is, is hydrolyzed feather meal that's in the tubs at CHS cells, is that digestible protein? And then my next question is, you know, I, I've heard some comments about how fast the energy is digested in a molasses tub versus a distiller's base tub or pellet like sweet pro and i would like some explanation on you know what that means if the energy digests faster than the protein in the rumen or uh you know if it's digested in a small intestine
2: yeah that's um i get those questions quite a bit usually and and um being an extension we do not product promote a, at all so um I think all extra supplement is good products. Um, I think some can be better than others. Uh, One of the big ones, if we're thinking about things that include like a distiller's grains or like a feather meal, um, those are typically what we call bypass protein. Um, which means they're going to be directly available to the cow to a certain extent. There's always some heat damage that occurs um, when, when processing and forming those products. And so it's not 100% available, right? Because cow, n- nobody's 100% efficient in, in absorbing that. Um, but I, I like to see a good mix of both what I would consider like a bypass and a non bypass protein type. Um, meaning, the big important part of the whole cow is to feed the rumen, which is those bugs in there, the the microbes, and so we need that energy or protein that's available to them because then they can provide a protein source to our cows as microbial protein. Um, is one product better than the other? Probably not, not that I've ever seen. And obviously, you know, as, as products, we're, we're not going to compare those, but um, I always think about in terms of are all the cows able to consume what they're supposed to, whatever that label says, whether it's a pound a day, half a pound a day, whatever it is. And in thinking of terms of on cow requirements on like pounds of protein needed. Mm. So one of the big ones is late gestation cows, um, 1400 pound cows need about two pounds of protein a day, roughly let's just on average. And, um, as, and that's So it makes it a little easier to calculate out. So if you got a 20% protein, doesn't matter what kind of tub it is, and they're only supposed to eat a pound a day, that's two-tenths of a pound of protein. So maybe that's enough to get her to where she needs. It kind of depends on what else she's consuming. Um, but also, like I said, can every cow consume that? And we all know we've got the, the boss cow out there, and she's probably eating five pounds a day. Cause she's just going to camp on that one tub. And then we got the, you know, probably the younger girls out there are two, three, four year olds somewhere in there. If they're with the big group, probably not getting quite about, you know, their pound a day just because they're smaller. They're going to get pushed out by those older cows. Um, and then we have cows that are just different and they don't consume any supplement whatsoever, no matter what we feed. Um, it would be a lot easier in my job if they'd read the book, but they don't. So Um, there, there's just a lot of different factors there that, that I consider, you know, and and I'm one of those, it's like, text me a picture of the labels. I'm not going to tell you which product to use or anything like that, but I'll look at each product and go, Hey, that's a pretty good product, you know, in your situation that works well. Um, I, but one thing to also consider is the convenience factor. Is it a lot easier for you to go roll out enough tubs or put out a liquid supplement or, you know, the guy that comes and fills the liquid for you, um, then to buy a cake feeder and go out and, and feed like an alfalfa or some sort of cake. Um, that's a huge factor in that, uh, that we, we don't typically consider cause it's very independent of each ranch. So, um, long story short, I like the products. Uh, one thing I do, um, consider is we get these really cold days and most of the time our cows are probably just going to hole up somewhere and just sit. But are those cows able to consume some of those products, you know, right? Look in a Popsicle, right? I wouldn't want to go outside and look at Popsicle today. So that could play a factor in that as well. Um, It's one of those things I'd like to, to look at in the future of how intake varies across some, some temperature ranges of some of the, the products. Now, molasses, um, thinking back to that question, it's not a bad product. It's not, you know, I'm not going to say anything like that, but molasses is a direct energy source for the rumen microbes. Um, So it hits the rumen and it's, and those bugs are immediately attacking it. It is not going to bypass to the small intestine other than as a microbial protein um, after they're recycled through. So there's a couple factors there. One thing I do like to always consider too, is when you look at those tags, uh, doesn't matter what product is, is those protein sources, obviously um, molasses is a good energy source, but you know, a distiller's grains, or it'll say it's something like grain byproducts or something like that. But is there a non-protein nitrogen source in those products, which is typically those really high protein um, supplements will have the non-protein nitrogen in them, which is something like urea or biuret. And it's only, and it'll be labeled as 20% of the protein is, comes from a non-protein nitrogen. We don't want to get too high on, on those non-protein nitrogen sources. Cause once again, they're only available in the rumen. They do not bypass the rumen into the small intestine. So that's why I say I like a good mix of the two because we need to keep the the rumen functioning. We need to keep it going, but also having some maybe a byproduct in there that can be a bypass protein can then also directly benefit the cow. So it's one of, it's, it's just kind of one of those more difficult questions, um, And it's and it's honestly a lot of times what's most convenient um, and least cost scenario for the rancher as well. And so a lot of times what I'll do is um, have you sit down or like you can send me the numbers, whatever, um, is what the protein is in whatever you're considering and what the cost is per ton. And then we'll sit down and calculate out what the cost per pound of protein is. For that supplement, no matter what it is, and then you can directly compare which is more cost effective for you, because let's be honest, if you have a nice alfalfa hay out there that you put up, um, yeah, it costs you labor and fuel and all these input costs, but it still costs you less than what you would either sell it for or what you would um, go buy it for a lot of times. And so we can figure out what's going to be most cost effective based on how much you actually have to feed of that to meet those needs. So it's all about kind of. I, you, no one wants to sit down and do a bunch of math, but um, a lot of times, in at least in my um, area, it's it's literally me with a piece of paper and a calculator, in my phone with, for a calculator, doing some multiplication and, and some some subtraction and things like that to try and figure out what's going to be the most cost effective, at least just on a raw cost.
0: Um, type of a situation. Just this could be yes or no, but hydrolyzed hydrolyzed feather meal is a digestible protein, right?
2: Typically feather meals are considered um, a non or a bypass protein. Um, The hydrolyzed, you'd have some protein available in the room and I wouldn't call it on, you know, it wouldn't be as, as if you were feeding, let's say like Soybeans or barley, things like that, where that would include the protein, but it, it would be, I think it would be a, I'd have to look at the numbers. It's been a while. Most of our supplements don't include a hydrolyzed feather meal. So um, I'd have to look at the numbers, but it's, it's probably like 40% available, 60% uh, small intestine or bypass protein. So it'd be kind of a 50, 50 in there that hydro hydrolyzation of it would increase the availability in the rumen.
1: I interrupt this scientific discussion to say this is exactly why I bring in a rancher member to join me on the podcast because they just have that background knowledge, that insight to ask some questions that I wouldn't think of. So I appreciate Tyrell's insight into that. Now, when it comes to agriculture, there's a lot of things that we pass on from generation to generation. Tyrell having four generations currently on the ranch, be it uh, his littles aren't quite actively involved just yet. I wanted to get a little bit of insight about how things work on their operation.
0: So we've always, I mean, almost always anyway, we've always had grass in our winter pastures. Um, They're both along Woody Island Creek. So we've got a lot of low quality forage um, available for them to go graze into January. So, you know, when, when you hear a lot of ranchers talking about, you know, feeding 40 pounds a day, you know, dry matter, we, we we're not anywhere close at we're, we're 20 to 25 pounds of dry matter. Um, we're not farming people at all, uh, but we do manage to grow pretty good alfalfa. So generally speaking, we've, we put out a high quality alfalfa, make them go graze for the rest. Uh, and then if we do supplement energy, it's generally with cake. Um, the reason I asked about tubs is because of this year, it is a little white right now, but it's a mostly open winter. And it made a lot of sense to put out tubs and let the cattle go graze. Um, and I know pound for pound tubs are generally the most expensive way to supplement, but I've got two two different cow herds, one yearling herd. And you know whether ranchers want to admit it or not, it's a hundred bucks an hour to fire up a tractor in fuel and depreciation. So. I want to fire up that tractor as little as possible um so we pretty much back to answer your question alien mean, that's a little bit of background i mean we i hate this phrase but we pretty much feed the way we always have with with high quality make them graze and get some cake but uh you know we have tried different different things um tried some different blocks some some worked some didn't and we've, we've got sweet pro tubs out right now but now that we're feeding um you know feeding full force we'll we'll start bringing in cake from RNG and malta here in a couple weeks. This, this came from uh, Rachel Endicott, whose opinion I value greatly. And, you know, I know a lot of the research out there shows that 1300 pound cow needs 1.8 tons of protein or pounds of protein a day. So let's just go put out 5.4 pounds and be good for three days. I don't disagree with that at all. I think it's a big time saving mechanism and can improve efficiency however um rachel just told me this and i i totally agree i mean it's 50 below windchill right now it's going to be for the next three days so i don't really want my cattle out burning energy grazing um and even though i might be overfeeding you know uh air quotes or putting out a little bit too much feed over three or four days span you know it's 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 not incremental from a dollar standpoint and I, I want to have my cattle lounging around and hanging out and conserving as much energy as possible. So that is, that is something I want to say on how we do it, Haley, is, I mean, we're, we're not afraid to kind of ignore our cows in December and around early April, they get kicked out and it's time to fend for yourself, but to, to off- offset that Not afraid to spoil them a little bit in January February if we need to.
1: When it comes to cattle feeding, and we're approaching now, some people already are calving. I always like to ask that question of, does it matter when we feed as far as having an impact on when a calf drops? I know there's always different takes on that. And then I'm also going to add to that just, you know, with this winter feeding discussion that we're having, knowing that digesting food creates heat for cows. When do we want to feed? Does it make sense to feed in the evening before that coldest time when the night temps hit? Or I guess what's your take on that, Dr. Van Ammon?
2: I know producers swear by that rule. You know, you feed in the afternoon, evening time, you eat calves during the day. Um, I wouldn't say it's a foolproof method, uh, but it's it, there has been some research done that has shown that, yes, that is beneficial and you can drop more calves proportionally during the day um, when you feed in the evenings. Um, is it an end all be all rule? No, you're always going to have the one cow no matter what she, no matter what you do, she's going to calve at two in the morning. She's going to have problems. <laughs> so, um, and I think she probably sits there and laughs at you, you know, cause she knows you had to get up and check her. But, um, so I would say, yeah, there, there is a benefit, um, to feeding in those evening afternoon times to help try and promote calving during the day. Um. Now for the cold nights, I usually recommend, you know, if you're going to feed a high quality feed, um, feed it in the morning, especially if you're going to maybe you get like these, for what is it? Four or five days where it's going to be really, really cold, um, super cold wind chills at night and things like that. Um, feeding those lower quality feed ingredients later in the day can really keep that room and going through those really cold temps. But I'm also, I, I liked what Tyrell said is he doesn't, want those cows up moving around and and run into that feed truck when it's really cold out. He's trying to get them to conserve that energy. And I think that's extremely important as well. So the closer you can get to the feed to kind of where they're at, um, the better off because they aren't going to have to travel to get there. Um, And I, and I think that's extremely beneficial. And um, a lot of times you'll have cow, you, you might have the young cows that'll come out and eat, Um, when it's extremely cold, just because they're young, they're curious, and and that's just what they are. The older cows, a lot of times you'll see kind of, nah, I'll just come, I'll I'll come the next day. It's not a big deal. I'm good. Um, But feeding those lower quality feed ingredients, kind of during these cold snaps, to try and get them through to those better days, um, I think is a little bit um, more, I guess, maybe counterintuitive to how you want to think about it just in the way because you think oh it's really cold I need to make sure they get all this extra nutrition into them because they need to meet these requirements but high quality feeds go through them a lot faster and so I it's kind of one of those counterintuitive feed a little bit lower quality feeds yeah maybe you have a little bit of supplement in there or some alfalfa something like that but the less they move, the more energy they can conserve. And so, you know, if you got to roll out a couple bales of straw and, and maybe a bale of some better quality grass hay to get them through this, I think that's more beneficial than than pumping up a bunch of alfalfa or some really high quality hays um, to them or fe- other feeds um, during these cold snaps because they're just so digestible and it just travels through them more rapidly.
1: And now we're going to play a little game I like to call the game of hypotheticals. That's my game show voice. But we're going to act like moisture is not a problem. There is a blanket of luxurious white snow out there. It's going to melt at exactly the right time. We're going to get that spring rain that we need to create exactly what we need this summer. And it's going to happen for the next five years. Okay, that groundwork hypothetical is established right now. And so if we don't have to worry about weather, and we're going to start rebuilding our personal cattle herds, there are options, right? We can keep more of our heifers, we can buy bred cattle. Or if you uh, have been watching our local livestock markets lately, there have been some open breeding age cattle that have gone through the ring. And obviously they are selling for much less than bred cattle. So what do we consider when we're looking at that strategy? Do we ever buy open cows and what do we need to think about if doing so? Uh, That's a, that's a
2: big question. Um, I think one one thing to always consider on those, especially those younger cows um, that are coming through the rain, they're open, or maybe they're even like late bred, something like that. Um, You know, predicting if we know the future, I always consider, okay, they're open for a reason, what reason why why are they open um and sometimes it could be as simple as hey they got scrimped you know the last couple of years they're thin okay you know i can feed them back up you know it's going to cost me some time and some money but i can probably get them back in better condition um but another thing to consider you're bringing an open animal onto your herd um with no guarantee she's going to breed for you um so then you spend let's say 2,500 bucks on honor and you get absolutely nothing out of her. So it's a risk that you have to, you're going to accept as, as a producer. Um, and is that risk worth the potential reward? And depending on, you know, I guess most of the economists that I've been listening to these prices are supposed to stay for at least another year, um, at least through this fall, potentially into next year too, because of our small herd in the United States. So you still have that potential to sell her as an open cow later on um, and maybe make your money back. But if she doesn't breed for you or maybe she breeds and you wait till October, November to sell her because maybe she lost that calf or something, she's not pregnant at at actual uh, breed up there um, for preg check. And then you've wasted, I don't want to say you wasted the money on her, but it still costs you something to have her out there grazing on your operation. She's taken another cow's position that, Hey, maybe if I would have kept back another replacement heifer or gave this other cow another shot, or she was a little bit later in the season or something with breeding. Um, These are all different management decisions that you kind of have to consider when, when you're ready to just throw that hand up in the, in the ring there. Um, But, and sometimes it's just, those cows didn't fit whoever management that they were in. Um, Cause you figure um, like Tyrell, you know, you're, you have so many generations. Those cows have been developed on that operation. And so of yours, Haley, you know, they've been there for years. They have, you don't, you aren't probably consciously making those decisions or not thinking about them, I guess, maybe consciously when you're selecting those replacement heifers or those cows to remain in your herd, but you are, and you're changing your genetics over time, whether you're, you're buying a high, high ranked EPD bowl or something like that, you're changing the genetics of your herd, um, on the, from the cow side of things. And so those cows have adapted to your management style and it's the cows that would come in that aren't adapted to your management style that you need to consider because, Maybe they're from someplace, you know, I've, I've got producers that I've talked to. They're like, Oh, we don't even make our cows graze. They have access to hay all year. You know, they're just super pampered. And then you're good. They're open, which they shouldn't be at that point. And you're going to bring them into the herd and spend some money on them. So I'm not necessarily saying it's a bad idea. It's, it's just a risk you have to decide whether you're willing to, to take. Um, and the, an open cow, she's not a high risk, um, but she's probably low risk. You're going to probably have to spend some money on her and get her developed into your herd. Um, and then who knows, maybe she's also the crazy one out there, you know, that eat your lunch every, you know, that's, there's a reason she was open and it's because she's high stress. So these are all some different things and it's, and it's really difficult sometimes while you're at the sale barn to assess any of that. And so just some decisions to to, to think about as, as you're thinking about raising your hand. Um, and I don't know, I like your prediction though. We're just going to say it's going to rain this spring <laughs> and, and we're going to have a good good summer pasture and everything and she'll be just fine too. So um, yeah, unfortunately it's kind of an individual basis on what um, that rancher is willing to accept and risk to the potential reward.
1: Tyrell, do you all keep, It kind of sounds like you have your nucleus herd. Do you build from that? Do you ever take in anything from the outside?
0: Uh, No, Uh, personally, I'm not opposed to it by any stretch, but we haven't bought females for about 40 years, probably at least. Um, So my opinion on your question, Haley is I'll give you my opinion. Then I'll try and give you an unbiased uh, stance, but My opinion is once dry, always dry. I would say absolutely not. Um, But I I also agree with what Megan said. I think this is probably an unpopular statement, but a lot of cattle don't get a good chance due to poor management, overgrazed pasture, people feeding too much poor quality forage, not developing water. I mean, there's a thousand reasons and I'm not, I'm not saying ranchers are bad producers, but there's some bad apples out there for sure. And then, so my unbiased opinion is just simply, I mean, know your numbers. It could work for some people. If it works for you, if you know what your costs are, you know, maybe, maybe it can work, but I would say, you know, if, if you have extra grass, um, you can bring in share cattle, you can bring in custom graze yearlings. Um, if, If you're able, my favorite, and this is because it works for our ranch, you know, we're still in a drought, so we're not, too excited about anything yet but you're able just to keep every heifer calf because if you're especially in eastern montana if you're calving later the market's hot right now but a lot of times that 450 500 pound heifer is not worth a whole bunch in october so to me that's a quick way to stock up and use your grass It gives you way more flexibility um but i would like to say back to my opinion or maybe fact uh, if you look at the drought map for Montana, whether or not you think that's accurate, it did expand a couple weeks ago. Um, it's definitely improved from 12 months ago without a doubt. But, you know, we got three inches of light, fluffy snow north of highway too. And snow is a big part of our moisture for the year. So personally, I would like to see a lot more snow before I'm optimistic about bringing in any extra cattle. And I think I think that mindset probably resonates with definitely everyone north of highway too. And it looks like droughts are growing in Southern and Southeastern Montana again. So.
1: Megan, as we were talking, you said one of the first things early on, we had a good grass here. So looking at last summer, so why was the breed up rate so bad? Why did my cows not look as good as I thought they should this fall? Um, these might be some of the very cows that we're seeing going through the ring, you know, that we're talking about in that last question. So why, Why did we have what seems like cause and effect, but the effect wasn't what we thought it was going to be?
2: Yeah, that's the, that's the hard one, right? We had a really good spring, you know, it started raining in May and it did not shut off, at least in Southeast Montana until about August. Um, the grass, we had a lot of grass, a lot of tall, nice, lush looking grass. The problem is, is water dilutes nutrients. Um, so we have what we would call, you know, kind of call washy grass. It was, we I mean, had a lot of it. There just wasn't a lot in it. Um, it was just too rapidly growing to pull any of those nutrients up from the soil. And, um, I think that was one of our primary issues. Um, not only just come, a lot of these cows may have been coming thin off um, the last few years of drought, um, probably skimping them a little bit more than, than we normally would, you know, right. We want to make cows work for us, but I, I know there, you know, some, some producers were a little bit, uh, skimpier on some of the the resources they gave them than others. And that's just cost, right. You know, it's, it's just hard. And so sometimes that just occurs. Um, but then, Another one we dealt a lot with, um, especially on the northeast side of the state, uh, grasshoppers um, came in and took um, a lot of the leaf structure away of some of those pastures. You know, I drive by and um even just walking through some of those pastures, you'd walk and there'd just be a huge swath of there's just nothing there but stalks. And that immediately is taking pounds of, of feed away from those cows. Um Third, uh, stable fly issues this year, a fly we don't, I would say normally deal with. Um, I would say it's typically more of a feedlot fly because it's, um, uh, it's, uh, laid in manure and decaying organic matter. So those old feed grounds, things like that, those flies are gonna, that's where those populate and, um, Then, you know, we have old feed grounds, we don't think much about them, because on a normal year, we get our, you know, three, four weeks, probably of at least hopefully good moisture. And by June fifteenth that's it for us, we're done. And that dries out. Well, this year, we had such an extended period of rain, there, there was a lot of that standing um, organic matter from our feed ground areas. And I think that was just a perfect breeding environment. And unfortunately for stable flies, we don't have a lot of control over those fly tags aren't going to work for you. Um, They're not labeled for those flies. And um, a lot of our IGRs or insect growth regulators that we feed um, were not labeled for stable flies. Um, the, The most effective way is to spray. And that's a once a week process. And I'm not going to talk to Tyrell and go, Hey, Tyrell, I need you to go out and spray every single cow on your place with a sprayer every week. You know, it's just not feasible. And so we kind of had to leave them. We had to say, okay, you, you guys have to deal with this um, on a cow herd basis. And it's easier. I mean, it's easy for me to say it. I know it's super difficult to deal with. And and everything um there's there's one product at least that i found recently it's called i think it's Clarify, and it's a feed through and it controls stable flies um biggest challenge it has to be fed 30 days prior to turnout or prior to the fly population you would expect to see increase and easier once again easier said than done um And because it just stops those flies from maturing to adulthood, it doesn't kill the adult flies, but at least would have slowed the population growth. Because that's, that's one of the number one questions I'm getting right now is, well, are we going to have another bad fly year. And honestly, I can't answer that question, because who knows what the weather is going to be like um, in six months. I I know we like to make these predictions, but I, I I think I don't like to look at the weather more than about three days in advance, because you just never know. So I I think honestly it was this culmination of events for us it, you know it just formed into one perfect storm of issues it wasn't necessarily one thing over the other um uh, I think cows in better condition that were in better condition following calving did better they fared better than those cows that were a little probably thin coming off of this last calving season so I I think we just we saw kind of the the repercussions of of some of that drought and you can manage through about, you can feed through. We we always say, you know, you can't feed through more than one year of a drought. Oh, and we're on year three to four. That, that is really difficult. It's extremely expensive. A lot of high input costs there. And that um, impacted not only the cows, that we're going through the drought, but also what is that ha- What is happening to that fetal development um, during that time frame? And I'm very curious. Um, I hate to say this as a scientist in me, I guess um, to see what happens to those heifers that were born during the years of the drought and how productive will they be um, for our cow herds? If you retained those heifers um, and, Unfortunately, we we don't have all. It's hard to study that. Uh, I will say anecdotally, um, in speaking with some veterinarians after the drought of 2017, and then we went into that horrible, horrible winter um, of of 1718. Those heifers that were in utero during that time bred the first for their first calf, but then subsequently did not breed back. And so, was that a factor um, that that occurred? during their developmental stage. Cause I think what we see now, um, sometimes if we get in these multi-year droughts, once again, anecdotally on just some observations and visiting with producers and veterinarians is those cows during that drought, they, they kind of, they can skimp through about a year. And then if they keep continuing have um, not having their requirements met, uh, those cows then start to shut down their reproduction. And they become more selfish, and because they're trying to maintain themselves, not necessarily the the fetus, and um, right, because because reproduction isn't required. It's not. It's it's an extra, and so that's one of the those are the first things that go once those nutrient requirements stop being met. So uh, I'll just kind of leave it at that, and and say um, I'm I guess I'm glad uh, I can speak to people, but I'm glad I don't have to to deal with a lot of the hard decisions um, when it comes to the, the different managements.
1: Thank you to Dr. Megan Van Emmen, Extension Beef Cattle Specialist with Montana State University, and also to Tyrell Obrecht, our rancher co-host and board member of the Ranchers Stewardship Alliance, a Turner Montana rancher, for joining us on the Ranch Stewards podcast today. Now, a couple of items of notes. One week from the release date for this podcast, we are going to have the first installment of four in the 2024 Rancher Stewardship Alliance rural resilience webinar series and it is a big hitter we are bringing in cattle facts to let us know what is going on with the cattle markets do some analysis that sort of thing it is a free webinar rsa is picking up the tab on this one so if you would like to join us we would be happy to have you no charge no funny business just the facts from cattle facts it's going on Thursday evening, January 25th, it'll run from 7 to 8.30 Mountain Time. You can get all of the details on that on our website, ranchstewards.org. It's also linked in the show notes. And then second, I have been trying really hard to build our YouTube channel. And here's the basics of this. If we can get our subscriber membership on YouTube, or subscribership, if that's a word, up to a thousand. YouTube actually starts to share some of the income that they make off of advertising within your programming, within the content that you put on YouTube. We would love to hit that mark. We would love your help in doing so. The details for that also down in the show notes. All right, that's gonna do it for this podcast. Stay safe, stay warm. We'll be back in again in February.
0: You've been listening to the Ranch Stewards Podcast a project of the Rancher Stewardship Alliance. If you like what you heard, head to ranchstewards.org for added content or follow the Rancher Stewardship Alliance on Facebook and Instagram.